Hello. Welcome to People Data Insights. This is Paul Ryman, founder and managing partner of Novo Insights and host of People Data Insights. Thanks again for listening. It's June. June is busting out all over, as they say in the show. Um, and here in Chicago, it's the month uh, where the weather is beautiful, kids are out of school, excited for summer. Um, definitely a time of year with lots of energy. And I think that'll come through in today's episode. I'm really excited to share this with you, a conversation with Cole Knapper. Uh, Cole Knapper is the VP of People Analytics and Product Evangelist for Orgnostic, which is an innovative people analytics, AI, data orchestration, and listening platform. Um, he's also the co-host of Directionally Correct, his own podcast about people analytics. Um, and he uh, sends out a newsletter also called Directionally Correct, where you can keep on top of what he's thinking about and seeing in the world. Um, he's, he's an experienced guy, a dozen years or so in building you know, centers of excellence around people analytics, both in small companies and big companies, and now on the provider of technology side. So he's seen it from all angles and really brings unique perspectives. He's also just not afraid to tell it like it is. Here's what I see that makes no sense. Here's what we need to see more of. You know, so this episode is packed with kind of interesting insights around skills tech, um, around prediction and, and what we can do differently and diagnostics and how that should take more of a, of a focus. There's also a little bit of a late 80s movies tinge to it um, since I decided to have a little fun with some pop culture references in my conversation with Cole. Um, so I hope you enjoy. It's an entertaining conversation packed with insights. Happy to share it with you. Here you go. Well, welcome, Cole. Good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. It's good to talk to you again. Absolutely. And uh, you, you may be a new voice to many of my listeners. So why don't we just start with the quick, tell us what you do. Um, so my name's Cole Knapper. Uh, background in IO psychology. Been in people analytics for about 15 years. Was kind of one of those early adopter folks. Uh, worked my way up. Uh, from an individual contributor to a manager to a manager of managers in internal people analytics functions and uh, eventually matriculated into the startup world uh, where I came across my current employer, which is Orgnostic, who's a people analytics platform, but uh, also kind of around that time, but a little bit before I started my own podcast called uh, Directionally Correct with my co-host Scott Hines where we like to have a lot of fun talking about people. We actually probably don't talk about people in like that much. If you, <laughs> if you got like, if you got like an NLP algorithm to like analyze the text of our conversation, I'd say it's probably a good 50, 50 people analytics, a bunch of other BS stuff that we end up talking about, but I don't know. That, so that's a little bit about me. That's perfect. I mean, I think, uh, when I speak publicly, I always say my goal is for you to have basically one sentence that you leave here that remembers and makes an impact. So if in directionally correct, you cover one topic that actually makes things worthwhile. That's a good hour from my perspective. Like that means you got a lot of values. So never need I, to in apologize. My opinion, you, you have very aspirational goals. We, our goal <laughs> is much lower than your goal of people leaving informed. Like that's, that's way too much to ask. That's right. Maybe entertainment is a is a more achievable, uh, consistent goal. <laughs> That's what I've been told on the dating market and as a podcast. I'm very achievable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, know know your place, I guess. Right. No, so exactly. the the name directionally correct. There's got to be a story there uh, that doesn't strike me as something that ChatGPT suggested to you. So g give me the background. Why why directionally correct? You know what's funny is we um, we had a different name. Uh, originally, 
Um, and we, we hadn't like searched it or anything. I'll even tell you what it was because I, I hadn't Google searched it. But we were thinking about calling it the horseshoe effect just because I had this theory I made up about how everything kind of almost starts where it ends, sort of like a horseshoe. Sure. And I thought that was interesting. Well, apparently that has a big political connotation that we weren't aware of. And so we, right before we were about to launch the first episode, we were kind of in this scramble mode, like, what are we going to call this thing? And I was like, I don't know. Most of the time what we're talking about is like kind of directionally correct. And we're like, oh, there it is. Oh, that's, that's the name. And, and then it is such, and I mean such, like this is the best part of the podcast. It is such a get out of jail free card where we are not factually correct. We are only directionally correct. And that helps us. I mean, it does a lot of heavy lifting. Totally. You, you, the burden of proof is much lower. If it's like, look, I told you, I'm going to get you headed in the right spot. Uh, we'll have to see how many, if there's a spike in Google searches of the horseshoe effect, uh, just when we publish this. Because I, I will admit, I'm also not familiar with uh, the political implications or political connotations of the horseshoe effect. Yeah, me effect. neither. Well, anyway. <laughs> but I like, I like directionally correct, just because it, it does signal sort of the imperfections in a lot of what we do. Uh, Absolutely. No doubt about that. Where did your um, name come from? Just out of curiosity. Totally. Good question. Uh, I don't think I've covered this in any past episodes either. So if you if you were to Google, like, what should you call your podcast, right? And, and you can see this when you go into, you know, Apple Podcasts and search around. The number one rule is to actually put the words in of, like, the thing you're going to talk about, right? Okay. So, you know, like, I have a, a colleague who started the Sales Compensation Show. Guess what they talk about, right? Sales Compensation, right? And yeah. you'll see so many examples where they're saying exactly what the show's supposed to be because it's supposed to improve sort of search results. So I on the the whiteboard that you can see, but no one else can see behind me, I basically put, like, well, what I think I'm going to cover. Well, there's people because, you know, we're in the people function, and I like data, and insights is what I'm trying to build the firm around. So I put those three words up there. I'm like, oh, that kind of feels like it's a name. So let's call it that. It's horribly unoriginal, yeah. but but you know it followed the rules of engagement around how do you improve searchability for a podcast, I guess. Yeah, I guess we don't abide by that rule, but in kind of like a meta way, we sort of do. Of you know, we're we're giving a disclaimer with our name, you know. Totally, it it, it works just the same, and it also you know how much do you really do, do people go searching for people analytics podcasts? I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I, I guess don't know. It's that's an another thing, thing. That we, <laughs> we really try not to pay attention to is like listenership because if we did, we'd be very depressed a lot of yeah. times. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's got to be for fun or for information, or you got to have some other kind of motivation if you want to keep these things going. Totally, nobody's becoming a, uh, a social media influencer by income, right? By doing podcasts in the people space yeah. that I'm aware of. I don't think that's really the goal. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Um, so uh, we were talking just before we started. You've been on a little bit of a national tour. We won't call it an era's tour, right? You're not at sort of T-Swift proportions here, but like you, you've been quite. out and about for the past month uh, kind of talking to the community. Yeah. How would you summarize sort of the state of the of the industry, right? Like what are your big ahas or themes that you heard coming out of talking to, you know, presumably – dozens, hundreds of, of people and like, you know, professionals over the past month or so. Yeah, I've been kind of, I, I talked about this actually at the Tal Reyes conference when I spoke is it's kind of been like Charles Dickens, a tale of two cities where there's many, many folks who are still just crushing it. They're doing great work. 
Teams are growing. People analytics is hot as ever, you know, still gaining momentum that we've all seen over the last few years. And then there's the other city, which is, you know, the people been, I, I've had more than my fair share of people who I know and respect who are out on the job market right now. Mm. Or, and just because they've been laid off, they decided they wanted to do something else. You know, they're not, they're disenchanted by their current role, but they don't want to tell anybody. And so like, can we do this on the down low? And I, I mean, I, I think it's very much um, it, it, like a kind of a flippening of sorts where it used to be the people that were at like the hot, sexy companies were always like, oh yeah, things are amazing here. And then maybe like, you know, the typical Fortune 500 company was always trying to play catch up. It seems like just because, you know, how hard like things like the tech industry has been hit by things like layoffs, it's actually some of the more like less sexy industries, you know, like, I don't know, grocery stores, distribution centers, those are actually the hottest places for people analytics right now. And, and maybe some of the tech companies, it, it's not like it's not hot anymore. It's just, it's not as hot as it once was. That's interesting. I, I was reflecting too in prep for this around, um, you know, what segment of the market's going to people analytics meetups, right? And I think it's a minority still from the standpoint, there's a lot of companies that, you know, yeah. just getting data is, is where they're at. And even big ones, I was surprised just the other day, I talked to somebody with 2000 employees that they're like, look, we just don't have any reports, let alone real yeah. analytics. I um, mean, that, that still exists too, you know, people that are just trying to, you know, get, get the first shovel into the ground of what people analytics looks like. But you know, I mean, I was at the SIOP conference, the Telreos conference, the Chicago People Analytics Meetup, and the Atlanta one, and Dallas, by the way. We had another one because I've been leading that group for five years. And so I've got a pretty good swath of, you know, some of the leaders yeah. in the field from places like Telreos, a lot of the IOs in the field from from SIOP, and then, you know, a good smattering of different, you know, you know, first-tier U.S. cities. So, you know, I mean, it's... I don't yeah. know if it's representative, but it's definitely people I know. No, but I would agree with you that the, you know, by virtue of the business cycle that big tech is in, there is yeah. more interest and traction and value being created in sort of the undiscovered industries. The, you know, I'm working with a manufacturer who's kind of getting into people analytics finally, and they would admit they're kind of coming a little bit late to the game, but there's still a ton of work to be done there and some interesting work. Um, that's untapped, and they're finding talent, thankfully, available. Uh, thankfully for them, less thankfully for the talent that's been going through a disruption. But there's there's fluidity to the market because of the layoffs, and hopefully those folks will find some homes in oh, these absolutely. less penetrated industries. <clears throat> and it's not like there's no roles out there to be had. It's just, you know, it seemed like for a while there, you couldn't throw a rock without hitting five open people analytics leader roles. And so, you know, maybe those days are behind us. I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, there's roles to be had. You know, one of the things that I've been following really closely now, just basically since the beginning of the pandemic and by nature of some friends that I've made is labor market analysis. Like what mm -hmm. is going on in the economy is having much more of an outsized impact on people analytics than it used to before the pandemic. At least that was my perception. And I even started my career in workforce planning, which is all about, you know, taking labor market data but there was this kind of period of time where it just didn't make much of a difference. Interest rates were functionally at zero. Employment was ticking down slowly but surely, but not a lot of kind of, you know, jolts on the chart of what was going on in terms of the economy. But we've seen many jolts on the chart since the COVID pandemic. And so 
I would I would encourage any people analytics person out there to follow that type of data very very closely. Yeah, it's a good point. You, you just published on this about the sort of the number of black swan events. We could argue whether or not they're black swans, but the hey, but I, I, I got to put a little bit of controversy. See what I do, and this is like the little subliminal messaging is I always put stuff in there that's sort of wrong that people <laughs> will want to disagree with, and then the people like you see you took the bait. You're just like, I got, I, it, I got this itch. I got to scratch it. I've got to scratch it. And so it's working like a charm. Thank you so much for taking the bait. Paul. Yeah, that's right. COVID pandemic, definitely black swan layoffs, eh, maybe kind of predictable maybe. based on some other things. But, but I think that where we agree for sure is that external variables are taking their root in sort of people analytics, right? If you're not aware of these other things that you don't control and you probably don't understand because who really understands the effect of interest rates on the labor market, um, they have an impact now. And they're certainly creating uncertainty, um, you know, and maybe explaining some of the error of all the models that we've been using for, for some period of time, because the rules are different. There's no doubt yeah. that the market is behaving differently over the past two years than the prior 10, which were largely stable when you really think about the level of volatility that's happening, yeah. you know, over the past two or three years. So I'm with you there yeah. for sure. The specifics we can debate, but uh, definitely the, the point is still true. Well, I'm just glad you read it. I mean, that's flattering in itself. <laughs> I, one of the things I will say is um, the concept of talent intelligence, I think, is really rising in prominence in the field of people analytics and frankly, outside of the field of people analytics, because I think I think there's a lot of firms that don't even have a people analytics team, but are now having a talent intelligence team, which is, mm. I think, really exciting because I also have passion in that space as well. But what I would be curious about is, you know, you get a lot of data from in the labor market space from things like the Bureau of Labor Statistics. What, how is LinkedIn data different, right? Like I would be loving to see the job openings report from LinkedIn just as much as I would from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, because I feel like that's probably more dynamic data in itself. And I always want to go closer to the source and that's why I'm, I'm really encouraged by talent intelligence having its kind of thumb on the pulse of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's the, you know, ADP did the same thing, right? They produced their yeah. report because they can do it faster than BLS can. Um, yep. Could LinkedIn, could other, probably, I mean, there's a, probably a bias in LinkedIn data, to, you know, towards white collar work away from blue collar well, work. Just like there's a bias in ADP for blue Fair. collar work. And totally. so like, if you could find these type of aggregators, that's really the, the, the nirvana state that you should be pursuing is how can I take the best in class data source for the segment of the economy that I care most about? Yeah, no, true. Very true. I was, I was on with a people leader yesterday just catching up and we were talking about sort of talent intelligence and skills intelligence is the thing that everybody wants to talk about, but the thing that he was most skeptical he could get value from in the near term. Uh, it was an interesting take just from the standpoint of we don't really know how to talk about the data yet. <laughs> and yeah, I'll be honest, I, I am not hard. on the skills train at all. Like, uh, I, I'm incredibly skeptical of it. I am, uh, if you try to go to, you know, root cause of how this came about, you realize it was all marketing materials from like four or five firms. Cause I mm -hmm. really try to like kind of ferret these things down like, okay, where's this push for skills coming from? And it, so when something's not coming from a true economic trend, from the academic literature, or from true practitioners themselves, I'm always very hesitant. 
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And his point was, you know, I got pitched on a skills tech provider, but it was basically scraping keywords from a resume. Yeah. Um, you know, we can look at the what skills cloud. What the could sk- go wrong, Paul? Exactly. And the skills cloud within my HCM system, which I won't name. And, you know, it's ultimately replicating unverified words from different things. It's guessing at what your skills might be. And if I ask people yeah. to tell me what they're skilled at, they don't know what words to use to begin with. So he's like, there's no quality data source, so I just can't do anything with it. But there seems to be plenty of talk about, you know, skills intelligence within that broader. I'm sure. I mean, there, there's a stickiness contagion factor to it. So that's why I just want to kind of pop the balloon. If you're doing skills work, it's probably going to blow up in your face because you're not going to find any value from it because it's just not there yet. And if you're not doing skills work, but you're considering it, stop. Because you're <laughs> going to spend a whole lot of money, waste a whole lot of time and hurt your credibility in the process. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's certainly other elements of people analytics that can produce fruit more reliably at a more mm-hmm. predictable cost than those kinds of things. I guess maybe let's wade into that a little bit. Um, let, let's let's create a balloon rather than popping one for those sure. that are kind of getting into the game. So, like, where would you start? Where where do you think are the more reliable sources of value that someone new into people analytics should start exploring? Yeah, I mean, uh, there there's obviously the basics of just your HCM data, your applicant tracking system data. Sometimes if you're lucky, you'll have like finance data and payroll data that are easily able to be merged. Sometimes you'll have things like learning management and performance management data. Those are all kind of going to the well of sorts. Um, And then kind of there's that second tier of information, which would be, you know, firm specific type of data, probably operational data of some sort or sales data of some sort that may be custom to your firm. There's the things like I was mentioning before, kind of the talent intelligence or labor market data that you may be wanting to merge in. And then there's, you know, the things that are kind of this leading edge digital exhaust type of stuff that's sometimes considered. And and that's where you get into this point of, are we being creepy or are we helping our employees? And I think that requires a lot of discussion, making sure that you have the right ethics and governance. I, I have kind of this love-hate relationship with governance where I think it's incredibly important, but I think that the people who are really passionate about putting into place usually don't have their heart in the right place. And so I'm, I'm always hesitant when somebody is like overly like pushing governance stuff. It's like, I think you're just saying you want to be in charge. I, I like, <laughs> I, I'm not sure you're saying that this is the right thing for all employees. So uh, again, I, I do think having the right ethical framework and the right governance is really, really important. Um, and I mean, there's, but there's a right, like it really comes back to, can you know who an employee is? Do you know when they were hired? Do you know when they're like how they're performing? Do you know when they're, when they leave the organization and then everything kind of springs out from there. And this is why I really like the framework of employee lifetime value and the employee life cycle from, um, like from an employee experience standpoint. Um, I mean, uh, we at Orgnostic, we try to combine those two variables, but that was a huge light bulb that went off for me a few years ago of like, oh, wow, employee lifetime value is is a way of quantifying the value employees are bringing to the organization in mass. And then the employee life cycle is touching every life stage. And what are the critical junctures and the moments that matter for every employee at certain points in time? And, you know, every employee is different, 
but the stages that they meet are usually pretty similar. And so can we sculpt an experience for people so that when they hit those critical stages, that is more beneficial for the employee and for the firm? Yeah, no, good take. And, uh, you know, I'm a big, from an analytics perspective, I'm like, look, it, it comes down to join, stay, perform, right? Like, why do people come to your company? Why do they stay? And what makes them do work? Um, and peel back from that. Uh, even just defining those things is a body of work in itself, like right? performance in particular. Um, you so mentioned I'm a, I'm a big fan of like good, like catchy, like phrases for how to remember things. Did you come up with that one yourself? I, I, I like that. I did. I did. It's uh, part of a, 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 a book uh, in progress around talent magnetism and what makes talent want to activate and stay where it's at. Uh, well, can we talk about that? Like, totally. Tell me about I, this talent magnetism concept. Well, it's, you know, <coughs> what I have found is that, um, you know, when I started my career some number of years ago, right, it was all about the value proposition, which made it sound more like I give you something, like I, company, give you something, and that you value it, right? And it, and it, it framed it as like a transfer of value. The, the thing I've noticed over the last 20 years is sometimes I don't have to give you anything. It's more about what you want, and I just happen to have it. Um, it might be that you give it to me. Like the employee actually creates it, this magnetism and the stickiness. Um, so it's a lot of the same things. Like, of course, pay is part of this magnetism relationship, culture and leadership and purpose and flexibility, right? They're all the things that we've been talking about, particularly over the last three years, about why people pay, you know, pick a job. Um, you know, but it's, it's creating the messaging, creating a set of programs, of course, but just understanding why do workers pick you <laughs> and why do yeah. they stay? And they're not always the same reasons. And it's just, so understanding let, me, let me ask that. you like the million dollar question related to it, because, you know, if, if you've already got the magnetism, I'm sure what you write is probably fun to read, but you're like, wait, we got this covered. But the tough one is what if you don't have it? How do you change it? How do you change yeah. going from being like, I don't know what do you call the opposite side of the magnet that repels Repelling. things? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How do you go from being a repellent to a magnet? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have to come up with the right word that's not repelling because repulsive is like the way that that gets internalized. It's like, oh, we're oh, yeah. a repulsive company. Um, well, maybe yeah, you and, are. I mean, like <laughs> if, if that's the case. That's right. So um, the, the way I'm, I've been drafting the thoughts on that is you really have two choices. So one is you either have to, to reverse your polarity, right? Meaning you have, to, you have to turn so that you become attractive, which means you have to change something about how you manage your workforce to attract people. The other option is to stay pointed at the same direction, but recognize you're going to only attract certain kinds of things, right? So you don't have to be great for everybody. Um, I've worked at a couple of companies that were super clear about who they were and who they weren't. And sometimes it was just getting that clarity saying, no, we're, you're, we're not repulsive to everybody. We're just repulsive to this kind of worker who wants this kind of experience or this kind of pay or whatever. And, you know, you, you just invest your time and your resources differently and say, look, I want to find people who just want to, who are yeah. all in on growth. They're going to be here for five years and we're going to move on. And that's how we're going to be magnetic <laughs> is being super well, clear about who we are yeah. and who we aren't. Right. So those are the two choices. You either have to change what you're doing or yeah. accept that you're not going to attract everybody and focus on where you can be attractive. Well, so like basically the two options, know yourself or change yourself. Yeah, Which one that, is more effective from your experience? Yeah. I think it's really hard to change 
how a company is, <laughs> right? And that's really yeah. what creates this, right? Once there's reputation, once there's a culture, you know, companies don't create culture, people do. And that's really hard to change. You can change a program. I can choose to pay more. I can choose to let people work remotely. Um, and those will work on the margin. But the big stuff that actually makes a big difference to why people want to stay at a place for a period of time, really hard to change. So if you can't get it aimed right at the beginning, you're, you're going to end up just, you know, making a choice to stay pointed in that direction and just accept the consequences of who you can who you can attract. So know thyself, I think, is the faster path to value just because it's so hard to really change who a company is. Yeah, I think that I track with that a lot. I, I don't think there's such a thing. I guess this is kind of a cynical take, another balloon pop of sorts. Um, but I just don't think that companies can really change their stripes. You know, they mm -hmm. can do things around the margins, but your core company culture just fundamentally very rarely changes. Yeah, it takes a lot. And and especially if, if the people don't change. I mean, I, I've seen yeah. organizations that really, I wouldn't call it a full 180, but, you know, maybe maybe turn 50 degrees, which is a lot yeah. of turn over a four-year window and you wouldn't recognize the people because it's a completely different organization. It's just the same commercial contracts, essentially. But the the company itself is totally different. It just takes a lot. And that's a lot of hard work. Whereas if you just accept who you are, you know, you can incrementally improve and still be valuable to employees and, and to your customers a lot faster. But so I don't want to say you can't do it. It's just, it's hard. And there's more evidence and stories of failure trying to create a culture change than, you know, understanding who you are. Yeah, I've always sure. wanted to be a magnet, but I just never succeeded. So, you know, maybe I could learn something from you, Paul. So does that mean, does that mean we can label you repulsive? Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure there, if you went across my dance card a few times, there's probably a few people who would have put the feedback on their exit survey of repulsive. So who knows? That said, or as I, I, I've joked with others, um, like I say this as the person who does an audio only podcast, right? So, I, you know, if you have the face for radio or as you actually do video, people see yeah. you. So uh, you're not that shy <laughs> by comparison. I mean, so. you get what you get. That's kind of how I think about it. You know, it's like, uh, if you don't like it, you're just going to have to stomach it. Totally. Totally. You make a choice. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, what's a what's a pet peeve you have, right, in the analytics community? Is there something that, like, when you see it on LinkedIn or where a vendor pitch includes it, where you're just like, oh, there's my fingers on the chalkboard moment? Yeah, like, all the time. Um, <laughs> Plenty of them. I'm yeah, like I have so like that's actually kind of my writing process is I find something that's driving me crazy. I write it and then I edit it to make it more positive because <laughs> uh, if I just use my first draft, everybody would hate my guts. Here's um, the rant but, from Cole, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of just screeds going on out there um, somewhere floating around in the in the cloud. Um I don't know what, what is, what's frustrating me right now? Like, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, so we, re we referenced the black swans and people yep. analytics article that came out. So what's the thing that's driving me crazy there is this constant push for people saying that predictive is what you should be striving for. Predictive, predictive, predictive. You go up the levels of maturity. Predictive is the highest level. Therefore you're in, you know, you're in paradise 
if you have made it to predictive. And that just drives me nuts. Mm. And, and the reason why, it, it, first of all, in a practical sense, I have found so much more value from diagnostic work compared to predictive work. Mm -hmm. So that's just a practical way of putting it. But second of all, how valuable really is predicting things when you don't go back and validate it after the fact to see if your predictions came true, which almost no one is doing, right? And then you would see your batting average is pretty bad. It's pretty bad, if not zero, right? Yep. And, and we get this false sense of security that we have things like confidence intervals and margins of error. And, and, and frankly, things fall outside of that all of the time. And then there's the marketing pitches of like companies that are saying like predictive is, is what we offer and that's the best thing ever. And I was like, I would much rather prescriptive insights. Prescriptive insights are going to say, hey, here's an insight, kind of a diagnostic again, because I'm much more in the diagnostic mm -hmm. camp. Hey, here's something that's happening and why it's happening. And then, and this is the key step, here's what we think you should do about it, right? Yeah. And I see almost no one going in that direction. We have invested heavily in that direction at Orgnostic. I have invested heavily in that when I've been leading functions at other places. That's about all we focus our efforts on. And so when I see the mind share that predictive work gets, it just frustrates me. And therefore I write article about swans, you know, because that's really important. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I, um, I have this model. I talk about the sort of uh, information to impact cycle and insights yeah. is where it breaks. Right. And it's not about the, the robots telling me what to do. Um, cause that's really hard. It's more about the right person with the right context, seeing the right information and then saying, from insight to idea, what do we do about it? So I'm with you 100%. Yep. Like that's where, that's where everything tends to break at a company. <laughs> um, well, and that's why I've been making this push more recently. I, I, I frankly, I, I find myself to be the only person saying this, is that people analytics needs to move from being a decision support function to a decision making function. Hmm. And we can't be a decision making function first if we are not ascending and accepting the responsibility that comes with that assertion. But the second of all, if we're not actually doing prescriptive work, we're not going to be any better than anyone else making the prescriptions and the decisions that are necessary to, to be made. And therefore yeah. we need to be investing in this area so that we can make that ascension up the ladder. That's a good point. I think, uh, per, yeah, the, the, the drum beating for predictive analytics has probably set us on the wrong course. And, um, I actually went to I went to school with Nate Silver, Signal in the Noise. Quick shout out to those who haven't read the book. You should, um, yeah. which basically preaches what you just described, right? Like to do prediction well, one, it's really hard. Two, you have to see how well you're doing it so that you can further improve. And that's just not been the mindset. And as a result, the the incremental value we get from the hours and thousands of dollars we spend trying to predict something, you know, you basically get the same thing by looking at well, just. Yeah. You know, how many people left last month? That's a pretty damn good prediction for who's going to leave next month. You don't need a yeah. fancy model for that. Uh, yeah. You know, you could, you could accomplish a lot there. Yeah, naive model is a pretty good model oftentimes. Uh, the thing I'd say, I'd like to kind of make this personal on a certain extent is like, I really care about people analytics and I really care about a lot of the folks that I know that have been affected by things like layoffs. Like I really mm -hmm. care about them. It hurts me. It hurts. It hurts me for the whole community. It doesn't do any of us well if the community in a way is suffering. 
And so when I see the field going in a direction that I think is, is hurting the field, I want to try to re-steer the ship a different direction. And I know I'm only one voice, but you know, one voice can make a difference if, if two people follow it and then those two people convert two more people and all of a sudden we have a majority. I think we can make these things happen because it's going to help us. If we're yeah. adding value, which is really the goal, if we're adding value, not just doing intellectual navel gazing, which is a lot of what this stuff is, if we're really adding value, we are going to be the rock stars that we thought we were or that we once were during the pandemic, right? We need to continue mm -hmm. that. We need to have a second act is what I've been calling it. We had an amazing first act. Now it's time for us to turn the page and have a strong second act. And I'm trying to drive that forward. Yeah, I love it. I, um, if we think about what enables that to an extent, right? One of the, one of my pet peeves since we started talking about sort of pet peeves is trying to squeeze too much juice out of one data source. And, and yeah, that's a very specific pet peeve, but I think it speaks to this problem, right? Good diagnostic work usually requires stitching together or orchestrating more than one source of data. Because um, yep. that's where the, the connections you can't readily see, right? Somebody who spends all their time in an ATS system kind of knows what the ATS data is telling you. They don't necessarily know what's going on with the data that's related to it. Yeah. So I guess talk a that, little bit about that. I know that's a, I know that's an emphasis area with, with, at Agnostic and making sure you mm -hmm. get sort of the different types of data together. But I guess what role do you see sort of this data orchestration playing in launching us into that act two? Well, before before I get into that, I, you, you're touching on one of my key points where I say, are you really going to find a lot of value if you've raked over this data a thousand times? Right. Like if if you're panning for gold in the same area you've been panning for gold for 10 years, do you really, I mean, it's possible you might find something. It's just not likely. Right. Right. Yep. And we're all probabilistic folks. So let's play the probabilities in our favor. And so that is where things like data orchestration come in. Orgnostic is invested heavily in kind of being the data orchestration layer of the future. Some people just call this data engineering, but data engineering in my mind has the connotation of you need to hire a data engineer that's going to merge all these data sets for you together. We have technology that basically does the work of many data engineers but the other thing is we've invested in a universal data taxonomy. So we've encountered all this type of data before. And when you're building it yourself, you have to categorize everything and create data definitions and metrics and all that stuff for the first time. We've done it a thousand times. So we want to save you that effort. Why should you have to go through it? Uh, so I really think that data orchestration, I think we have an awesome tool for people analytics and scenario planning and talent intelligence and employee lifecycle surveys and the like. But data orchestration is the magic of our tool. It's what enables it and makes it possible and makes sure that you're not raking over the th same thing for the thousandth time. Yeah. Yeah. It's in a, a shout out or a call out to those who don't spend all day thinking about people analytics there's a difference between we can integrate with these different types of data and we've thought through like what this data actually means of these different types of data. Yes. So it's one thing, and, and every vendor will say we can integrate because uh, you can. It's actually well, not even every just, vendor, but that's another story. You know, <laughs> everybody could say we can integrate because, yes, it yeah. is possible to move data from one place to another. But where to put it and how to compare it and how to make it work alongside a transaction from over here and a, you know, a description from over there, that's the hard part. So 
finding a, a pre-built model, different words than what you're describing, my, my own words, that just says, yeah. you know, this this is a candidate and this is how it's going to consume information related to candidates. And here's a separate object, which is an employee and how it's going to consume and understand those things relative to one another. And that's simple. You know, it's more complex yeah. than that, but that's that's hugely valuable. Well, and I'll even go a step further because imagine, you know, you, you use the example of a candidate. Well, there's different systems that have candidates in them. Sure. We have a way of categorizing amongst every system that's out there. And so yeah. it doesn't matter if you came from XYZ or ABC, because I'm again, I'm not trying to give them publicity. Don't but me. I mean, if you're going through a system change, if you're going through a merger and acquisition, if you're going, if you have legacy systems that are just hanging on in the background, these are real problems that teams spend months, if not years, and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to fix that we we're just good at. And yeah. it's like, why make something that could be easy hard? Totally. I um I told someone just a couple of weeks ago they were making a big HCM switch. And I said, if you're not using this as an opportunity to invest in better people analytics, you're making a mistake because you're gonna spend a six figure number on data conversions and moving history and figuring out how to migrate. I'm like, let the let the analytics tools do it. They can. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very fast ROI and you get a ton of extra benefit from it. Uh, it's a kind of a hidden use case of the tools like Orgnostic and some others around like, let us be the one that stitches together your old system and your new system in a smart data model. Um, well, fast value for fair, sure. I mean, I've been on the other side of the table for most of my career. A lot of times vendors used to make these promises and couldn't deliver. And yeah. so the jadedness that a lot of kind of the the elder statesmen of our field feel is real. Like, and they're, they're right to have felt it is because people couldn't keep their promises. And so I just, I I'll say this and I'll stake my reputation on it because that's what I'm doing with my job is like, we actually can. And so if you don't believe me, reach out, you know, and, and prove me wrong. Like, just like I, I put little nuggets in my articles for people to disagree with, come disagree <laughs> with me on this, and I promise you we'll prove you wrong. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so I, I, in the, in, you mentioned elder statesmen, so I'm going to go to sort of the next segment that I had planned. Uh, I gave you a little warning. Sure. I, I, I love pop culture, movie references, jokes, stuff like that. Um, so I want to do a series of questions related to, like, call them late 80s movies uh, that, that most would know, but with a little bit of a people analytics tinge to it. Um, so I really, really hope I don't disappoint you here. I'm, yeah. I'm, this is the first time on the podcast I've gotten nervous. So <laughs> Totally. This always works. The lightning round is where uh, people get a little squirmy in the seat. So now the good news is I have, a, I have a first step qualifier, which I'll see how this goes, and that'll tell me how far I push some of these references real fast. So... Starting super easy. Just just name a couple of your favorite sort of late 80s-ish movies. It's okay if it's plus or minus, but I'm going mean, to see like, where you're say, at on the spectrum. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking, and, and tell me if this is the wrong time period, but I'm thinking like Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller. You're on. That is exactly um, the right time period. I don't know. Is Forrest Gump in that time period? I can't remember. I like that Forrest movie Gump's too, but... later than that. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> But yeah, the, the other ones, uh, one of which is is on my list uh, to include okay. a reference here. So yeah, you're in the right genre. So would you say like Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club, those are 
those are good ones in the in the yeah. Cole Napper library. I mean, I'll be honest, I probably haven't seen them in ten or fifteen years, but they are good movies. Totally, it's all good. So then, let's start with Ferris Bueller, and this is not people analytics related. But since you've been on the road and and seen some different cities, so be Ferris Bueller for the day, but you can pick the city. Where are you going? Like where where if you could pick one day to do all the things you want to do, where would you go do that? I mean. I don't know why the first thing that popped into my head, just because the movie is is there, is Chicago. Chicago is a really cool city. I really do enjoy it. I will say, just to kind of go rogue, maybe like a city I've never been to. I would say maybe a I've never been to Miami or Toronto. Those have hmm. always seemed like interesting cities. Um, so maybe I'll go to Toronto. There you go. It's so uh, Chicago Homer here, right? I am a Chicago yeah. guy and, and June is the month to come here. Yes, um, it very much no, is. Totally. Now, people will say you mentioned Toronto. Toronto and Chicago are kind of like a similar vibe. So when you do your Ferris Bueller Day in Toronto, you know, there's a similar vibe to it. Water on one side. You know, you don't want to be there in the winter. So there's a whole lot of parallels that you would find. But uh, absolutely. All right, here we go. Now we go into the people analytics sort of uh, tinged ones. So you get Bill and Ted's phone booth, and it's going to take you back to sort of the origins of people analytics. Who are you kidnapping to bring to the future? You know, so you mentioned the elder statesman. Here's your chance to sort of call out, like, who are some of those pioneers or uh, elder statesmen that you think would be interesting to talk about? Sort of what went on then and what's going on now? Well, I want to give credit, and and this may not be the perfect answer to your question, but I want to give credit to some people who I really looked up to for a while, who I do feel like were there early and have stood the test of time. There are plenty of people that were there that are no longer there, but Mm. I I really look up to people like Max Blumberg, Amit Mohindra, Alexis Fink, you know, David Green. Like these are people. In very different ways, mind you, because of those four people, they have very different career tracks that that they were really, they're still in the field, they're still contributing, but they contributed a long time ago. And I, I think personally, I, I take a lot of what they've learned and just recycle it back as my own thoughts, probably. It's not plagiarism if you're nice about it, right? Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, but I, I really admire those folks, and 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 they've been kind to me in my career, and so I'm very grateful for what they do. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, so now now you're Indiana Jones, and you're searching for the Holy Grail. So what's the People Analytics Holy Grail? Like, what's the thing that you think, boy, if we could solve this or have this capability or or address this, what 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 is that? What's the Holy Grail? You know, um, this is gonna be kind of a random answer and it's more probably io psychology than people analytics but there there's a whole string of people out there that call psychology not a real science Mm. because we don't really have true theories that that predict with almost certainty outcomes of the human experience and if you overlay that onto the workplace you would want to be able to create theories in the workplace that you could test scientifically that had very deterministic outcomes, which we don't have. And so I would say the holy grail of people analytics would be if we could even get one step closer to that direction. We don't even have to make it to the end state because I'm not even entirely sure that that's possible. But if it were possible, if we could make one kind of phase shift change Mm. to get closer to that direction, I think that would be very much the holy grail. Interesting. Yeah, it's 
I'm an economist by education um, and was doing that education at an era where it was making that pivot, right? Like Freakonomics yeah. wasn't a thing yet, but the work underlying Freakonomics and, you know, Thaler's work recognizing that behaviors are anomalous relative to economic theory. Um, but that transition has really moved the field of economics forward. Uh, where people yeah. now say, okay, I, I I may not be able to perfectly predict this outcome, but at least I understand why I can't perfectly predict this outcome. And here are some variables I can, you know, control for, measure, and understand that get me closer to a better prediction or at least a more probabilistic outcome that's more accurate, right? So, and that, yeah. it's, I mean, it's been 25 years of transition, really, in that space as people understand that humans make different decisions than econ. So it's, it's a similar story, it sounds like. Just figuring when out. You, were, you, uh, were you at University of Chicago? Because I mean, there's a lot of those behavioral economics folks from there. I was, yeah. I, um, yeah. Yes, it's the reason that I'm in the HR world rather than sort of the econ world was the this behavior stuff because it was it was cutting edge in you know late 90s yeah. when I was there, and it was just fascinating to say, wait a minute, how did you get that from the data? And you know, you're actually using data to explore this rather than just math with no numbers. Um, yeah, that's yeah, amazing. I was there at the beginning, it was pretty awesome. Absolutely, that is cool. I love that for you, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. That's for sure. Um, here's my last sort of late '80s one, um, and this is inspired by my eight-year-old who has discovered Top Gun. Um, oh so yeah, okay. I know. Like, who doesn't get excited about that? Um, so you're you're Maverick, and I'm going to ask you sort of who are your version of these other characters? So. Who's your goose? Who's your partner in crime? Well, I mean, I, I think it's clear from the podcast. Obviously, Scott is my goose. He might call himself Maverick and me goose, but re regardless. Well, he's not here. He's not here. Yeah, he's I not here. Maverick. <laughs> so I'm definitely Maverick. He's definitely goose. Um, and we're just going to say that that's the case. There you go. Um, who's your viper, right? So the person who mentors you to success, but kind of has to give you the hard truth sometimes to make that happen. Yeah, that's a good one. I would, um, there's very, I, I and I, I kind of, I wish this wasn't the case because there's not that many people who out there who give me hard truth. So I actually will say Max Blumberg because he's one of the few people out there that gives me shit and, um, and I need it. And so I, I'm very appreciative of it. There you go. That's, that's important for sure. And then who's your ice man, right? So the competitor, you know, that is you fiercely compete with, but in aggregate, you actually move the mission forward, right? Of course, you know, the oh, yeah. end, spoiler alert, they win, right? So who's your ice man? See, I got to give people like, and I mean this in the most positive way, because I'll be honest, you know, I used the plagiarism thing earlier. Another person who I plagiarized a bunch I've copied basically everything that they did into a certain point was Richard Rosenau. He's been a great, you know, evangelist of our field for a really long time. And then I say he started copying me because he decided to go to a startup and then he decided to go work for a competitor to Orgnostic. And so I was like, all right, Iceman, it's on, buddy. <laughs> totally. Totally. I feel like I'm, uh, as a result, since Richard was, I think, two episodes or three episodes ago here on the same podcast, I guess I'm like Hollywood and Wolfman, right? Like I'm that third person that gets stuck between the two competitors, at least from this podcast perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I have the utmost respect for the guy. And I think for for in terms of people who have been continually pushing our field forward in a very positive way, 
I think you'd have to put him on any Mount Rushmore. He's been doing an excellent job ever since he entered the field. Yeah. It feels like that's a that's an award that needs to happen at some point. There's like the Mount Rushmore of people analytics that needs to get uh needs to get crafted. Yeah, I mean who, who's going to pay for the bill? That's that's really the <laughs> that's you know, right. who buys the drinks and that determines yeah. who decides who's on the Mount Rushmore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally. Totally. That's funny. Um cool. I think um I think at this point, I guess I'd love to hear a little bit more or my my audience would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, about the work you're doing at Agnostic, what you think is well, can, cutting can I, edge. Before, I, before yeah. we go there, can we, I mean, you actually asked really good 80s reference questions. I, I do want to kick the Top Gun one back to you. <laughs> like who, no, in all seriousness, it's like fair. who? who's your Viper? Who's your Iceman? Who's your uh, Goose? Totally. Those are good. Uh, sure. So, you know, my, my goose is definitely my, my friend and he's on this podcast quite a bit, Brian Briscoe, who we've been speaking together for years. Um, you know, he'll challenge me, I'll challenge him, uh, which is what you need. Um, you know, but we're definitely, you know, uh, he's my, we would argue as well. Who's Maverick and who's goose. I think, uh, from some standpoints, I'm definitely the goose from others. I think he would admit that, uh, I'm the Maverick. So it's, just figuring out when. Um, my Viper, uh, I didn't plan for that one. Um, you know, I, I've had a few, you know, I don't I don't think I'm of the type that has like a dedicated mentor, but there's definitely been a few folks um, that have been instrumental in my career. If I really trace it to the one who's probably made the biggest impact, and he'll be surprised when he hears this, uh, his name's Scott Sands. He's a partner at a consulting firm down in Atlanta, not in the people analytics space at all. But he was the first person to give me hard feedback. Um, and it was more of the, yes, yes, Paul, you're smart, but you've got a, yeah. kind of a bit of an attitude, right? And that was, that was foundational for me when I was 22 years old and thought I you know, could rule the world. Um, so hard feedback was kind of an important thing then. And it's really made a difference in terms of you know, encouraging me to be a listener more than a speaker sometimes. Um, well, no, I'll tell you that I'll give you, this isn't hard feedback by any means, but one of the beauties I think of having our podcast and getting to write a bunch of articles is I've gotten to give people love publicly that I really wanted. And it's, it's such a gratifying feeling to get to say you appreciate someone. So giving people those opportunities is amazing. And so now tell me about who you hate. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hate anybody. I'm a loving kind of guy, but, uh, You know, certainly on the Iceman front, like I, you know, competitors mean a new thing, especially when you're at sort of my stage where I'm starting my own thing and, you know, I'm a year almost into it. You know, there's a lot of competitors, but this, the the people space, the compensation space where I do a lot of work, the people analytics space, like it's not that big. Like, yeah, we're all kind of in this together uh, in, in a variety of ways. So there's probably a lot of them. Um, you know, there's a few I could probably call out um, just where I feel like we're more friendly than not. I would just did a, a, a LinkedIn live session on pay transparency last yeah. week with a number that I would call out uh, on there. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm going to get names wrong in the moment. Catherine Gombos was there for sure. Um, Clay Johnson, you know, Justin Hampton, uh, Justin Sun. There are a number of people that I compete with day in, day out on, on some forms, but I feel like we're having the right dialogue to move the industry forward around how to deal with pay transparency. 
um, all the tech providers, honestly, like there's always this build versus buy thing. So I compete with that to, to an extent, but it's better for the industry if we all realize that there's plenty out there, plenty yeah. of good work to be done. And let's just uh, have the right conversations to help people and let the business well, fall and, where and it falls. We're all adults. Like we know that there's many different kinds of use cases, some of which lend themselves to technology. Some of them lend themselves to big consulting firms. Some lend themselves to, you know, a boutique one man show. And like, there's a need, not only is there enough space for all of us, there's a need and demand for all of that. And so we have to all be invested in giving back to this ecosystem because again, it makes us all stronger. As long as we're not investing in skills, by God, don't do the skills thing. <laughs> that balloon needs to stay popped. Yeah, uh, for sure. No, especially on like on the on the services side, less on the product side, like chemistry and trust and ability to connect and have the right conversation is what really makes something successful, right? Um, you know, all the work that I do around job and compensation architectures, like. It's the product isn't fundamentally different when you work with me, when you work with somebody else. The process can be different. The, you know, the ahas and the experience might be different, but, you know, the work's the work, you know, so finding somebody that you can trust and it is going to be the right partner is really the right search process. So plenty of competitors, but it, it just makes sense for all of us to, to collaborate in the right, you know, still competitive ways. No doubt about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll give you a different one. It wasn't the the Top Gun one, but on the Holy Grail, you know, the mm -hmm. one thing that I'm hearing a lot from my clients is around um, really linking sort of people data to to the business performance outcome, right? So it's I think it it's not different than what you described, right? It's not being like fully deterministic, but it's really understanding like this is what creates X in revenue, or this is what can create Y in profit, like. It's so aspirational because the the number of connections between <laughs> the data that we play with on the people side all the way through to the income statement is really, really complex. But it feels like that's really the thing that everybody would love to say, right? If you do this, yeah. you will make more money. Well, yeah, great. But boy, is that difficult. There's some applications where you can see it, you know, or managing attrition has a direct cost impact or, you know, incentive utilization and how do you get people to sell something different so there's a few that are closer than others but it feels like that's the big one that's been kind of framed as the holy grail to me you, you yeah you sound like a startup leader and an economist got to get those unit economics right right <laughs> <laughs> totally you can tell what i think about uh too much yeah. probably in the grand scheme of things absolutely cool so pull, I'm going to pull you back. So give me the, with the remaining time, sort of talk a little bit about the work you're doing at Agnostic and where you're, you know, what's coming from a, not yeah. give us the roadmap, but more like what's new and interesting in, in Agnostic's world. No, honestly, the most exciting thing that's going on here and frankly should be the most exciting thing that's going on in the people analytics industry is how we've invested in generative AI. And it's not the weird stuff. It's not the ethical, creepy stuff. It's about the automation stuff. I think that, and this is not just a people analytics statement. This is actually kind of a business statement is that I think generative AI has the best ability to be a net good to society when it focuses highly on automating the things that people don't want to do, shouldn't be doing, shouldn't have to do, never wanted to do in the first place. And maybe we should have had a computer doing it all along. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
in terms of what is going on in people analytics, Orgnostics new generative AI tool, it is getting that whole value chain into a single format. So you've already got your data in our tool. So you know it's only focusing on your data. It's not hallucinating and doing all the things that people worry about. And you ask it a question, it gives you multiple choices of answers with visuals and open-ended text of saying, hey, here's what we're seeing that's happening in your data based on what we found and prescriptions based on best-in-class academic and practitioner research to say, here's what you should do about it. And it does that in like two seconds. And so the way I put it is, you know, there was a point in my career early where you would make a presentation to executives on what, what's going on and what you should do about it. And they would ask you a tough question and you wouldn't know the answer. And you'd say, oh, I'll get back to you in two weeks. Yep. Right. And then there was a period in time where the technology got a little bit better. And so you could, you could create your own queries. You could do your own filters. And so you'd say, the executive asked the same question. You say, I'll get back to you in two hours. Well, what, what's happened with generative AI is they ask a tough question. You ask it to the tool and it gets you the answer and what to do about it in two seconds. So two weeks to two hours to two seconds. This is the evolution. This yeah. is the future. And the crazy part, it's not the future, it's the present. This actually exists right now and it's really good. And I, I always say this, this is the worst it will ever be. It's only going to get better. And so the future of people analytics is largely, and this is why I keep pushing this notion that we need to move up and ascend into decision-making roles is because the decision support things that people analytics do, a lot of that is going to be automated. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And so we need to ascend and be the ones who are the subject matter experts that can make these responsible and accountable decisions based on the data because we know the data better than anyone else. Why should someone who doesn't know the data be making these type of decisions? It makes no sense, hmm. right? And so this is this is what I believe. This is what I'm seeing. And, and frankly, I'm really excited about it. And it's why I feel like Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics vendor on the market. Yeah, one thing just to call out there too, I mentioned earlier that I use this information to impact cycle, right? So for information, mm -hmm. you, you need to generate insights. From insights, you need to come up with ideas. From the ideas, you have to implement them, and then you can make an impact. And you can screw that up anywhere along the, the chain. What I what I heard, just heard you say is that the the two day or two weeks, the two hours, the two seconds is that information to insight cycle. Like, can we get meaning and make the right interpretations immediately? What you also said is that it, you can it can stimulate ideas. It may not tell you exactly like go implement yeah. this thing. It's more have you thought about when this pattern exists. This Correct. might be what you need to explore. So it's it's not giving you the answer because it's that's going to take some time, um, but it's giving you ideas, and that's often the hard part is coming well, up what with it viable does, solutions. What it does is it puts critical thinking as a premium on both the front end and the back end. Hmm. On the front end, you have to have critical thinking to ask all the right questions, generate the right research questions, and test the right hypotheses. On the back end, it's going to require critical thinking. To say, hey, we made a recommendation, but sometimes the best thing you can do is the opposite of a recommendation, right? Sometimes that's what fits your business strategy best. Kind of like all the way back to the conversation we were having earlier about magnetism, about know yourself versus change yourself. Sometimes it takes critical thinking to choose. Should I choose change myself or should I choose know myself depending on the context of the situation? 
And, and, and so critical thinking is going to matter more and more as time goes along. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, we're almost out of time. Um, if somebody's looking to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Reach out to me on LinkedIn. My email is cole at orgnostic.com. Uh, listen to directionally correct, listen to people, data and insights, you know, let, let's be friends. I don't know. <laughs> I love giving back to this community. This is, these are my people. This is my tribe. And I hope you guys accept me in your tribe as well. <laughs> I appreciate that. This has been fun. Uh, absolutely. It's always good to chat with, uh, with people in the space, get a different take and have a little, uh, have a laugh while doing it. So thanks very much for coming on Cole. Thanks for having me, Paul. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thanks. So there you have it. A conversation with the one and the only Cole Knapper from Orgnostic. I'm having a lot of conversations these days with organizations really struggling with where to get started in the analytics journey. Um, the people analytics market is strong. Um, and there's a lot of organizations that are realizing that they're behind what's possible. Um, there's a lot of challenges with starting the journey in terms of do you start with technology? Do you start with people? Uh, do you need a little bit of both? What's the size of investment that's needed? How long should I expect before we see fruit? So if these are the kinds of questions that you're struggling with, I'd encourage you to reach out. I'd love to speak with you more about what's possible and what we're seeing in the market and how Novo Insights can help. As always, I appreciate you listening. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, give us a like on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on LinkedIn so others can see it. Definitely uh, would be interested in your feedback. Feel free to send me a note at paul at novoinsights.com. Um, with topics you'd be interested in or any comments you'd like to make. Um, we definitely appreciate your support and your listenership. And until next time. <laughs>